Welcome to Shotgun Story, the podcast that has conversations with indie creators about music, meaning, and the point of it all, so that you may be inspired by the journeys of other artists who are doing it for themselves, and maybe gain a little more understanding as to why it matters quite so much that you keep creating. Sia bongo tempu. As a curator, a creative entrepreneur, a self-starter, band leader for the band The Brother Moves On, and he's slowly becoming a scene godfather. And he's in studio with us today. Hi, Sia. Hi. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, thank you for coming. It's really nice to see you after so long. Mm, definitely. <laughs> we'll start at the beginning. Yep. What drew you to music? How did it begin for you? My dad was a big jazz head. Well, not only a jazz head, like there was Pavarotti in his stuff, there was Joe Cocker in his stuff. He had a range of music and every Saturday and Sunday his brothers would come over and they'd choose what uh, instrument their focus was and each of them would play, would come with like records and that would be the bride. Wow. Yeah. My mom was a teacher who was really heavy into the church, mm -hmm. so she became a choir master so most of my time was spent between these two human beings whose lives revolved around music in some way. And that's how it started. Amazing. And mm. when did you start learning to play? I didn't think I knew how to play for it. And I, th I think it's one of the things that's the underlying thing of my process is that it's not a thinking thing anymore for me. Mm. So, But my earliest memory would be trying to sing End of the Road because my sister had written it out oh. in the kitchen. And my sister had a heavy soprano voice and I was just finding the parts like Wanye's parts and Sean Stockman's parts and singing them. And then my sister turned around and told me, you can't sing, shut up. That's my earliest no. memory of me like <laughs> learning how to sing no. <laughs> in the psychosis of my singing. <laughs> Our siblings can be so cruel, particularly older sisters. No, most definitely. But life uh, tended to deal with us and this, um, this talent we had also quite intensely because we ended up at Coca-Cola Pop Stars together by chance. Ah. That is interesting. Yeah, so like um, I'm in matric yeah. and my sister wants to go to Pop Stars and I want to go see Marvel. I've never seen Marvel. I've mm. heard about Marvel. It's just a place like bohemians walk around. Wow, I feel weird in my current setting because I feel like I'm closer to that than to where I'm at at home. And my sister's like, I got a deal for you. I'll take you to Marvel if you come with me. Uh, for this audition, you'll sit in the car and I'll go in. I'm like, okay, cool. I get to see Marvel. Mm -hmm. We go to the SABC the first time I see the SABC as well. And I'm like, whoa, this is intense. Oh mm -hmm. my God, I'm at TV land. And my sister goes in, but they say, listen, uh, anyone who's here has to go in for the audition. My sister has my ID by chance. Dun, 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 and I go in and I audition reluctantly for about four rounds and make it to the final I think it was 50 that went to camp and on the final edition it's me and my sister and they're telling the story of the brother and sister story and I get chosen and she doesn't yes so life life is intense that way yeah I get chosen she's really really wanting this badly and I'm just like reluctantly singing moment by moment haven't smoked anything in my life haven't drank anything in my life so you know, it's the you always catch them while they're young syndrome happening. And I eventually, it was the, I think the breaking point was when they got to the last 30. 
I still had made it past, even at camp, because I just wasn't, I wasn't engaged, really, to tell the truth. And then they kicked out a single mom who I thought had the most amazing talent. She actually, in the second season, made it into the band. But they kicked her out, and at this moment, it just broke my heart. A really rough time, and I went and I locked myself in the bathroom for two days and only came out for meals because I'm a eater but <laughs> and then went back in there didn't take a part in any of the rounds and I got kicked out and then I was in this big huge like tour bus driving all the way back from like nature reserve wherever it was in the northwest back to SABC and it felt like the dream you know like a big tour bus and I was alone and I think something in me then was like I don't want to be a pop musician I don't want to do anything I didn't even try to be for this situation but it was just like that was the initial learning path of like where this has taken me was and then I got out the bus and my mom's waiting there in her gown and she's like you're my star <laughs> and that was yeah that was my matric year uh, the school had allowed me to miss like prelims I came home and I took my sister was working at SAA at the time so she gave me a free flight walked into the airport looked at the screen, chose the first flight. It was going to East London. I went to East London. By chance, I ended up at a restaurant no, that was owned by my wife's mom. Yes, was the first place I went to. Only years later would I find out that that was my wife's mom's business. Yeah, and that we'd been circling each other for life. <laughs> the music is like that. It just also has its own story. Like the commercialized side of it is what we want so desperately of it. But it's it's a heating bomb that started before capitalism. It continues. So like we want to fit it into certain boxes and relations, but it has its own story. I feel shook, actually. <laughs> but I mean, life continued to pull you back to the Eastern Cape, didn't it? Uh, you went to study at Rhodes. Yep. How I ended up studying at Rhodes was uh, they had courts, Hunter's Dry Courts. Yeah. At the tapes, I had won a Steve Biko scholarship in matric as well to go to Rhodes for two weeks and uh, take part in a journalism and media studies uh, workshop. Went down, had just started drinking and had moved, you know, in my distinct taste to Hunter's Dry. You know, it's not the same anymore, but <laughs> it's Hunter's Dry. I went down there and they had these cords of Hunter's Dry and nowhere else in the country had I seen these cords. And also I just had this thought process is that going to Vitz would wreck me. You know, like I'd been grown up in Johannesburg, very Johannesburg savvy, that I needed to slow down a little bit. So I got offered a engineering path at Vitz and a journal media studies path at Rhodes. So I went to Rhodes. So then you studied journalism, hey? Well, it was supposed, you study four courses. So it was journal and what were your other choices? And I had decided I was going to do journal music. I went to the music department, walked in, and they said, do you have your grades? I was like, great, what's that? I was like, I don't know what that is. Oh, damn. Okay, I'm not going home. I need to figure out what else I'm going to study. Spent the whole of orientation week going to interview, like, space, like these, where the departments sell themselves to you. I ended up doing politics because my dad was heavy into politics, and I knew I grew up in a political home, really. I ended up doing English Lit because I wrote and then I walked into the drama department because it was next door, the music department, and saw Mongi Mdombeni and Daniel Buckland 
and Andrew Buckland on stage. Oh my god! Yeah, after seeing that, I signed up for drama, and that's been it's been the niggling part of my performance relation of like I'm actually a dramatic arts kid that sings. Yes, and you can tell that from your band. Yeah, I, I always used to say earlier on to it was actually my little brother actually was the one who convinced all of us that a, ba- a band existed before. So the myth existed before the band. Yeah, he convinced all of us that he was in a band and we were together. Well, he convinced everyone else. I knew he was lying. I lived in the same house as him. And he then convinced me, really, I should sing for this band. And he's got a guitarist coming over. That was Raytheon. Mervan, he's got Zwash, my cousin, who had just learned guitar because he had stolen my guitar. They came, they jammed, we played a song. Sigalela was the song, actually, in my mom's bedroom. And that day we decided, okay, cool, we're going to play. And the brother moves on. As this current incarnation began, because before that we were a band known as Jewish, which was weird, I don't know why. <laughs> it was uh, acoustic guitar, uh, pots and pans, and three vocals. And it was me, my brother, and my cousin who had stolen my guitar. <laughs> we formed a band called Jewish. We pawned everything we had. Uh, to buy a guitar, go to arts festival, and we bust for two weeks and came home. Yeah, we were a lot braver. We were a lot braver with our like creative ideas at that time. You know, we could only play three songs. One of them being Karma Police, and we got a gig. We got a gig that week, like that whole week. We got a gig, and we came back. And arts fest just became this place where the brother kept going back to. Whoopsie. <laughs> I must say, actually, uh, that you mentioned arts fest. The very first time I went. I think you were there that year, and I wasn't playing anywhere. I had gone to to see Kyla Davis and Clyde Burning, Mm. and Clyde was like, you have to play something, somewhere. So he reversed this bucky into the back of that long passage by the long table. Long table, yeah. He reversed a bucky in there. He instructed me to get on there and and to play. Oh, how cool. It is so busking. Yeah. No, but that's also where we're supposed to be returning to. Yeah. Like musicians have institutionalized too much of what we do, creatives as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, we've institutionalized creativity. It only means something if, like, the market wants it. Yeah. Some of the things we make are for healing. They're not necessarily for the market, in essence. And yes. you know, some of them are for for joy. Some of them are superfluous. Like it's 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 okay, but it's the sad part is that we've now measured it all by its commercial success. Oh, it's yeah. devastating. Yeah. And that means music is becoming streamlined. So also the frequencies that the body needs to hear in the music, in the relation, are being removed so that it can be streamed. And it can be compacted and the audience can get it quickly and have that 140 characters gratification. But this thing is not wasn't meant for that. So a lot of healing will be lost. A lot of anxiety will not be like sorted out because, well, we've cut out the decibels. Yeah. <laughs> You know, cut out the, the frequencies that give us that. It's a natural occurring scientific relation and a biological relation. Not some, I like this music. Yeah. Yeah, you like this music because it makes you feel something. It it gives you something. It could suck. It could be like straight up boring Western music. But <laughs> it tinges on a memory in your life and a smile in your life and something in your life. Yeah. That's hereditary and needs some healing. And if you didn't hear it, you wouldn't know that. You know? Yeah. I mean, when you think about it like that, that all the stuff that we're getting, we're being fed online, is that, and yeah. there's no live shows. I mean, now yeah. they're coming back slowly, but it's like, that's that's huge. Yeah, but even in our listening culture, like, how many people listen to albums anymore? 
Oh my gosh, so few. Yeah, and I, and it's, I'm like one of those those bad people. I won't lie. I, if the album's bad, the album's bad. I, I will like frequent the song via Spotify, which is like my pick and pay for instant gratification. But when I love an album, uh, in essence, I'll own it in some place and I'll find moments to play it. It'll always bring back, even if I'm like, I remember like Moses Mullenek was Jeans and Spirits. I heard it first next door, uh, Res Room, where my neighbor was playing it. I went to ask him for it. I'd never heard it in my life. Mm -hmm. I listened to it for a month straight afterwards, every day coming back. He took back his CD, and oh. he, then he lent me Andile and Anna's uh, We Used to Dance. And I did the same thing to that, and I was like heavy now back into South African jazz. It was my dad's thing up yeah. until that moment again. But then I find it again in my early years of leaving Varsity. I've still got it at home. Yeah. Uh, a DJ friend steals it, <laughs> and later on we become the best of friends in life. But now, Matsuri, we've just done a retrospective for Matsuri Records, They've just sent us vinyls, and one of the vinyls was Jeans and Spirits. Oh, my God. It's an ornament. If you think about it, it's like the album becomes this like moment of me remembering every single time where I am on the plane, what grounds me, yes. how many times I've heard it. I don't know the songs name by name. I know them like by hearing them. I know them. I drove in a car for like years with the CD. Yeah. It's, it's ingrained in who I am. It's not this thing that I can remove one track and be like, Oh, that's my favorite one on that one. No, it's, it's what I used to clean the house to. Yeah. It's, it's part of like my lived experience. And that's, that's where we're removing music anymore. It's no longer, uh, it's just something that pushes your identity. And mm. you're like, oh, it's boring. <laughs> and do you have ways to play CDs and vinyls and stuff like that now? Because I know there seem to be removing those easy ways for us to listen that way. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the car for me works always. Okay. Yeah. I think it's also got to do with like black male masculinity. The car is our home. Yeah. <laughs> like, so if I want to like escape yeah. and wash a car, then I'm allowed to by society. If I want to take a drive in my car, I'm allowed to. Yeah. So it becomes my lounge. I've been trying to convince my wife that I should get a studio in the house. Yeah. She said she'll think about it yesterday. <laughs> <Baba Nani's>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, so I'm still searching for that space where I make for myself and yeah. by myself and where I can put up a sign that says no entry. And I know my daughter will really, really respect that. Well, it's interesting that you say that mm. because I wanted to ask you about how music has changed since you've been a dad. But I can tell you that for me, since being a mom, it's so hard to find a space for myself to make music. It's a consistent fight. Yeah. No, like... That is really true. I was lucky. There was a point where just before we had Vile, I was going to quit music. Mm. I had decided I need to look after my child. I'm still in that quagmire of school fees that cost 21,000 rands a term mm. <laughs> for, yeah, for your child, you know, and you, you want to give your child a good start. And you know that a good start might have to be a middle class uh, strangling every sense of who they are in a white school start. Yeah. But that's what it is. Because there aren't many choices that are being given right now. Mm. I just decided I'm just, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of managing the brother. I'm tired of carrying a lot on my shoulders and I want to let it go. And then Shabaka Hutchings, who's a tenor saxophonist from the UK mm. and a friend who I'd met in Cape Town over the years when he was in Cape Town and I was in Cape Town, was recording a South African jazz album. He had invited all my favorite band leaders, uh, people in the same space of like leadership in the South African scene that I've been put in. Mm -hmm. 
And he was like, yeah, man, come sing a track or two. I know you're done, but like, you know, I'm just doing this for, for the future, so come through. I was like, okay, cool. I was like, I'll pay you for the session. I was like, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> now that you pay me for the session, okay. And I went, and it was so chilled. I ended up singing about four to five songs. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that was fun. You know, I was like, oh, man, I used to miss how music could give me that because I'm always the leader. I'm the guy who had to plan everything. I'm the guy who had to do all of that and then sing. Yeah. And I went home. Uh, Shabs took it home back to the UK, played it to Giles Peterson from Brownswood. Brownswood put out the first album in 2017. We signed on to a touring agency in France and we did 100 gigs in a year in that first year. So I was an absent musician dad for Vida's first year coming in and out, but uh, did three European tours, two US tours. And like, and like, I had done Brother Moves on tours, which I've had to plan, and we're in Europe for three weeks and we're playing six gigs. This was, we're in Europe for three weeks and we're playing 18 gigs. So day in, day out, flying one country to the next. And like professional musicianship, like where the dreams of what I had came into play. So yeah, that created a space in society for me to do music and to say that I'm an artist and to relate that way. And I came back home and it was weird. I felt very removed. I felt very uh, foreign. And I got a job. <laughs> I got a job at Soweto Theatre and I started working as a marketing manager for the only black theatre in Gauteng, in essence. And I hope not South Africa, but I think so. Did a two-year stint there and the whole basis was I was working there because I knew we were recording another album and I knew I'd go on tour again pretty soon. Shabaka came again in 2018. 18 late 2019 early took it to the record label record label wasn't happy we started freaking out we're like come on dude and then he was like okay guys i didn't tell you the record label's actually impulse records and we're signing a new deal and we're moving to the biggest u.s boutique jazz label that was john coltrane alice coltrane and pharaoh sanders's label so we get announced 2019 uh, the album's coming out in March 2020. We've got two European tours, two North America tours, a Blue Note Japan tour, and which is us, Christian Scott, and I don't remember who the third was on the Blue Note tour. And we're about to leave. I've got my ticket to the US. I've moved my family to East London. I've packed everything into storage. And I think I was, my flight was on the Monday, on the Friday. Uh, Donald Trump closes down the United States of America. On that Friday, the album comes out. We, in the New York Times, we're on Huck Magazine. We've just blown through the water. And everyone is like, oh my God, this album was like a post-apocalyptic call to what's about to happen. Mm. Yeah, and we were just sitting at home going, we've stopped all our lives. We don't know what's going to happen. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was the most intense. Me and my wife drove around that morning, that Saturday morning, for like hours. Oh my God. It's going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Uh, my mother in law was amazing. She stepped in and was like, I'll cover you guys. Let's figure out what you're going to do. 
We spent mm. three months in East London. In those three months, lost my mind, jogged so many times. I had forgotten that I had a plan that in April I was going to record a South African jazz compilation when I came back um, from tour before I went back to Europe again yeah. with Brownswood Records. Because Shabaka curated a compilation called We Are Cheer of the UK scene. And when we were on tour at a dinner, I was like, why don't you guys do South Africa? And they're like, well, we've never had anyone to curate it. I was like, I'll do it. Oh, And they're like, yeah, sure, send us a proposal. Only nine months later did I send the proposal. And then we started talking, we started talking. In the talking, I was like, yeah, I want Tandine Dooley to co-produce this with me. They were like, no, that's no problem. Carried on talking. Tandy was going to go on tour after Jazz Fest as well. So both of us were like, yeah, great. This is perfect within our tour gap. We both can do this situation because we're both going to Europe and going to relate to the music that side. Yeah. So we forgot about it in totality in the first month. And then I got a call in April going, hey, we would be recording now. Yeah, I know, hey. I know, hey. But hey, everything's falling apart. I'm like, okay, I'm not expecting anything of it. And then Emily was like, yo, so when do you think we can record? I was like, are you serious? He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's just keep check of like when we get released. Come June, when the president decides we're leaving hard lockdown to level three, and I need to get like employment letters from uh, people in the quasi employment world of creative hustling. Yeah. Yeah. So, and to travel half the country and there's nothing, you're just driving across the country and there's no one. You know that if you break down here, oh it's going to be forever. And it's me and my whole family. Post-apocalyptic. Yeah, we're all packed in the car. We're going back to Joburg. We're going back to our lives. We drive, we get home. A friend of ours gave us his art studio for the first two months. Mm. Um, thank you, Harun. <laughs> <laughs> in that month, like two weeks straight from coming back, we go into studio with 48 musicians and we record an eight-track epic South African compilation called Indaba Is, wow. which is like an ode to the indigenous knowledge system. The title itself is from a book called Indawa My Children by Credo Mutua. Beautiful. Yeah, which posits the Bantu way of how things happened and where life began. And it's really like, as a South African, I think you should read it as a book. I don't even know how to explain it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but it's like the beginnings of everything. So it was a tip of the hat not to be like, we own that culture or we are that culture, but it was just to acknowledge that this music is part of that indigenous knowledge system mm. and that that's where it should rest and not within how commercial it relates to commercial culture, but it's actually there for the healing as its initial thing and primary goal. So we released it on Brownswood November 30th. Yeah. I've been on heavy interview run from like the 30th of November as if, like, I'm not gigging, but my career is booming. Amazing. And that's, that's so weird. Because it's, <laughs> it's like, it's appearance of media that becomes so interesting. So we got like the cover of The Wire magazine. We got a New York Times uh, write-up that was amazing. The French paper, Le Monde, picked us up. The German papers picked us up. It was a huge run. Uh, the Huck magazine had it down. We were getting four out of five stars, of very, very big ratings. Online, I think the only thing we didn't like engage with yet was Pitchfork, in essence, in the many things we were aiming for. And that was power. It manifested so beautifully, but it also showed me like, ooh, the musicians are hurt and traumatized people as a whole, and a lot of people feel not significant enough within themselves a lot of the times. 
And then when you bring it into a space of all of us being together, this issue of ownership and whose narrative is the riding narrative becomes such a huge issue. Because then everyone's like, yeah, I feel like the story erased the efforts I made there. And you're like, no, I think we're all supposed to be building a cooperative space. Absolutely. And not this one opportunity where we should use this as the gateway to create more of the story rather than fight for the pittance that's there. It kind of like reminds me of the old days where we used to fight to be the only black band at the White Festival. Yeah. Where it was BCUC or it was Urban Village or it was The Brother Moves On. Still to this day, all three of those bands don't have unity relation based on that very, very young child relation. We have unity as people when we meet each other in ones yeah. and twos, but when you're like the bands working together and it being a brown band scene, so it becomes a bit of a a tight one, you know? I feel closer to my jazz heads than I do too. And that's through Shabaka and the Ancestors. Yeah. Than I do to the alternative scene just because it's just like the politics of it really separated us. And it was a beautiful thing that my friend who's the drummer for the Ancestors said this last weekend. He was like, you know, you must realize we're all just reactionaries. So don't judge that person's reaction. Just remember what they're reacting to, that you are also reacting to. Yeah. You know, whether it's imperialism, colonialism, a lack of infrastructure, a lack of resources, we're all reacting. And so that's how it helps in helping you find the high ground and not take things as personally as we always do in those ego spaces. And the hope is that um, when things open up again, there's not only space for one brown band, you know? It, it comes back also from like the top. Uh, South Africa suffers from an ageism problem. Like, oh my, oh my uh, yeah, gosh, before, yes, yeah, before you even go to the very obvious issues that apartheid poses, a part, a characteristic of apartheid that we're not relating to is the Calvinistic and chauvinistic Christian ideology that was heavily embedded in it. And a big part of it is ageism, is like the kids know nothing, you know. So, the people who were running these gigs were 10 to 15 years older than us. Yeah. And when this opens up, that's what's going to open up for us is, hey, here's a chance back into the Asian. It's your turn now. You know how things really work now. Mm. You know, so it's it's a weird thing where I'm like, how do we start building new things that flatten out this relation and give opportunity to everyone? Yeah, it doesn't mean everyone is going to be streamed the same, et cetera, et cetera. But like right now, it just pits us against each other. And that's not what the culture is. No. So that's my whole thing is like, I love everybody's thing of like, yeah, this close-up made us have such a difficult time, et cetera, et cetera. Things were a mess. Absolutely. Things were a heavy mess. Artists were being exploited as a, as a given. Still now, we're sitting, what, a year into it? Artists mm. have just had 70% of their COVID relief cut by the National Arts Council, and they're camping at the National Arts Council offices. You know, you've seen this happen in lots of like African liberation spaces and European and Americas. It becomes a very dangerous situation because you're leaving fodder. And it's not an issue of giving everyone a job. I think that's our biggest problem in South Africa. We're still stuck on an old narrative. Mm. It's not about giving everyone a job. It's about giving people resource spaces for them to do their thing. They don't really like where the brother moves on. The leg ups came when it was like a big national thing, like the South African season in France mm. or the South African season in the UK. But otherwise, we hustled for ourselves. We yeah. figured out how to do the visa situation with ourselves. It was the weirdest thing for the Europeans to be like, who's your manager? We are. You guys? Yeah. 
okay, uh, okay. <laughs> you're like, yeah, you know, five black boys managing their lives. Tough for you to realize, isn't it? Yeah. We got this. Like, send us what we need. We made some mistakes, a lot of mistakes coming up, but like everyone does. But it seems like when you're young and black and you make those mistakes, it's because you're young and black. And that's just like where things started to revolve around. And mm. even in the scene, the South African scene, I was saved by two things, the Goodman Gallery and Shabaka and the ancestors from the South African scene. But like, they they just had this thing where I started to be painted as like an angry black musician. And I'd be like, what the heck? Mail and Guardian would call me for these articles where they're like, we just need an angry black voice. And they wouldn't say it in that way, but mm. they'd be like, so we're doing an article on Opikopi and we'd like to know what you think about their race dynamics. Oh. Leading questions. Yeah, I'm like, uh, no, I don't know. No comment. And then I get an email. Hi, we'd like to pay you to do, uh, and I went to Opikopi that year and they wanted to pay me to do an article on the race dynamics at Opikopi. I went to the top of um, the Red Bull stage. Mm. Uh, after we played, we had had a great set. I took a bottle of champers on my own and just walked, didn't even talk to anyone, spent the night just like happy I finally did this. Mm. Walked to the top. As I was looking down, like the main stage was full. Like it is well, throughout the whole time we were there, it was never this full. Yeah. I was like, who's on next? And who comes out? Jack Parrot with like a long freaking hat. That yeah. And he says, Let's say Afrikaans is dirt. Fuck, And the audience goes, Yeah. <laughs> and I just sat there and I was like, you know, the nuances of South African culture are really just heavily undermined in how simplistic we'd like it to be. Yeah. So, Opikopi represented a very Afrikaans identity that was trying its best to be anti-national party. Absolutely. Yeah, we can like deal with the politics of their booking then of the black spaces and their relation to that and etc etc but also that's a dynamic space that you need to know further when you start thinking of Kenny and DJ Bob's other stage and everything was an effort and like most bad South African efforts it was gestural and not really thought through with that scene in mind mm. but it wasn't something that was done for bad intentions and bad outcomes yeah. you know? so I kind of sat there and I was like and the problem is this newspaper needs a sensationalist break where my viewpoint is simply like, you know, black and white on the situation. My band members had loved Opikopi. I was too old. I hated it. <laughs> it had nothing to do with anything. I hated it. We went again and, and my wife was like, I'm never sleeping on the floor again. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I get you. I feel you. Mm. It's got nothing to do with being bougie and old. It was never cool to sleep on the floor. <laughs> Like, no matter how cool they made it on the poster, it's really not that cool to sleep on the floor. You know? And it's yeah. not nature. That's not nature. That's bush. It's <laughs> a huge difference. Nature is like, you hear the rivers and it's like lush grounds and you wake up in the morning you're like, oh my God, we're out of nature. This is pretty. That was straight up felt. I know better places to camp in Kempton Park. <laughs> and I ain't gonna lie. You know? But it was a holy place. You know? Nice. It had other relations to it. And that's kind of like, where I think the ageism of South Africa kind of switches off. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it doesn't want to go to, who are the new young kids on that? And wants to recreate, it's looking for the new brother moves on. Mm -hmm. 
not what are kids actually doing now? How are they relating to the culture? So this whole ageism thing keeps getting reiterated because we're still stuck in this like old paradigm of black rock mm. and white pop and apartheid has left us with that and no one's dealing with it. So we'll open up, but I see the same things playing out. I look at Santa and I'm like, wow, you remind me of us then. I look at Ipupulapika, I'm like, wow, you remind us of us then. Mm. And I wish I could be there to be counsel to the band leaders to be like, yo, when this happens, this is what we did wrong. Like, how are you going to relate? But there's not even that conversation because the youngster's like, nah, bruh, you're my competition. <laughs> you're going to block me from moving into the same space. Not in particular to Santa and Ipupulapika, yeah. but like, it's just it's 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 competition, competition, competition. Yeah. And why? It's because there's no youth centers for music. There's no job centers for the most unemployed country and an equal country in the world. There aren't job centers for people to go in, figure out where the upskilling opportunities are, be able to access it online, be able to make that stuff happen and apply there or if they need to do it there, do it there. Wow. So there's just like really basic ideas you see around the world. Like Absolutely. I went to the roundhouse. Kids kids rent out spaces to do podcasts. They pay a once a month small amount. Like what came up to about 250 bucks to use all the facilities. You want to rehearse? Come rehearse. We've got the stuff. And what did they do? They made sure that they went to the corporates and said, yo, you guys can't keep taking it the cream at the top only and not doing anything for the roots. Yeah. So give us care for the roots. Give us means. We'll give you the system of how it happens. We'll make sure that it's like tax deductible for you. Yeah. But like, that's the thing about South Africa is like, we're sitting here with the world wanting this raw material of what our music can do. But like an arts council that's, I don't know. I don't even want to talk about them, but even just an arts sector that's not going, how do we make it possible and easier for more kids? Because it's going to make the critical mass bigger Yeah. to access this. Because like I look at the brother moves on music, it's been heard by more white people than black people. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like the lyrics aren't in white. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm trying to say. So like, but why? It's because there's no places that we can access in black spaces outside of capital because it costs. That's a thing. Totally, but uh, that's a solution. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, it's been sitting with me since second year varsity, the solution. Oh my gosh, I'm hoping some corporate is listening to this and wants to get involved. Yeah, no, hey, it's going to happen. It's just, I, I, we're trying to figure it out how to do it as ourselves now, because I think it's also the, the South African artist mentality of waiting for corporate to jump on mm -hmm. before something gets moving. You know, yeah. it's, it's hardcore, my bandmate is, is a percussionist, Honsi Machene. He used to play for Kwani Experience. He's been around the scene forever. And I used to tell him, like, I used to look up to you when I was in matric, here yeah. watching you play. Like we tease him and say he's that old. But like, he's amazing. But also he comes from a dynasty of artists. Blondie Machene is his uncle. The market theater is named after his father. His older brother, Tali Machene, is a Swazi-based percussionist. And I was like, yeah, man, when are you opening this drum cafe where people can come, make drums, learn, because we need it. And the thing yeah. is, we're not positioning it within like the health sector. We're still positioning it within the entertainment, alcohol, cigarette, sponsorship space. So it's not leaving the space of like nightlife and et cetera, yeah. et cetera, and going into other spaces. So even with the brother, we're like, yeah, man, we want to come things come right. Actually, even this hundred restriction is perfect for our mother and child shows. 
because we're like oh, our fans are mothers yeah yeah <laughs> and they can't come to like a dead in the night show where we're playing at midnight we can't even play those midnight shows anymore we're just like <laughs> every single time we show up at a place and people are like yo where you on midnight <laughs> oh see I hope I make it <laughs> We're not those people anymore. Oh, you're speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> and also that that's the beauty of it is moving on to not want to be those people. We want to open the show. Yeah. We want to set the caliber of like what engagement should be at a show. We're we're over the you know, the the crazy band at the end. Oh my god, I saw you guys, you guys are so crazy. <laughs> and like, okay, yeah, that was you know, younger us. Uh yeah. that's when we used to kill a bottle of tequila before we went on the show together. Like, yeah, we get the I, watched, I once saw the black eyed bones like slap each other before show. I laughed so hard. I was like, I can't believe they're doing that. <laughs> it was like, it was at uh, Bohemian. Wow. Uh, I showed up early. I was having a pizza. I was like, oh man, black eyed bones. You know, I'd seen them before in East London. I was like, oh my God. Just before the show, shots of tequila, shots of tequila, slapping each other. And years later, when the brother moves on, shots of tequila, we're not going to slap each other. We're black eyes. <laughs> Like I said, just slap each other for fun. <laughs> oh, Bohemian, that was a joke. Oh, hey, we once we once had a show where our drummer didn't show up, and we were so brave. We just played the show without a drummer, and that was the weirdest. And everyone loved the show. Yeah. Everyone was like, and afterwards, I was just like, this brand is so freaking brave. You know, we we used to take things on. Yeah. Now if our drummer had to call us and be like, yo, guys, I can't come. Okay, guys, so we're not playing. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> the best part of youth yeah. is that, that courage, blind uh, courage. Yeah, well, we started out with two guitars. It was Renkush, Zwash, me, and BJ. Oh. And that show at Love and Revolution, we mm. we, we put on porn in the back. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, changed the color relations everything was blue had a tinge of weird blue and Kush was like it's a blue movie that was his like sucking point like, okay cool we can do this <laughs> we played that show and afterwards we were like we're a band now yes now to find instrumentalists <laughs> amazing yeah it was we were really really like heavy belief and also then when the youth left we all had like this doubt about this thing. Mm. But I remember reading something about the Blight Jacks because I knew the cats and I knew the energy of the music. And someone was writing that the energy of all of us together is not us. It's the energy of all of us together. And he was writing about the Blight Jacks and that and going that if you removed one of the Jacks, it would not sound like the blackjacks because it has an energy it has a heaviness it has and I remember reading that and relating it back to us because we had, were going through a difficult time Ray had left for the UK mm. and trying to find a sense but then what kind of saved us was the idea at the get go was brothers leave brothers come the sound evolves the sound moves the sound but it stays something in the essence stays the same mm. So in those difficult times of doubts, I'd play the current album, which we've just now signed a record deal for. And I'd hear the music, I'd be like, okay, I can't quit. Yeah. These guys suck, but this music's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, oh God, and I really want to quit. Mm-hmm. And then we'd keep going, and more of this music would happen. 
it was so interesting that this COVID thing happened because it came at a time where I started to be scared about this performing thing driving me crazy. Yeah. And I knew I had to do it for money. I knew I had to do it for certain things. Mm. I wondered what my daughter would do without me for a year. Yeah. Because she's no longer a baby. She calls herself a toddler. <laughs> yeah, I'm a toddler. Okay, you are. <laughs> we wake up together. If it's in the middle of the night, she wants water. She shouts my name. Daddy! Yeah. Whichever room she's in. Between me, her grand and her mom is her world. So what this COVID thing did is, and much it took away, it gave quite a lot more. I left a toxic job at Soweto Theatre to be a musician again. I've been a musician for a year I used to be afraid of calling myself that. Yeah. <laughs> but now I'm I am I am that. I'm a I curate things and work finds me. It's nice now. It's not the difficulty of always having to battle with spaces, with gigs. And I like being at home and I wanna write the solo album, so that's where my head is now going. It's like, okay, cool. And the solo album's whole thing is the split between the fun dancey things I can do in the commercial world and having an EP of that. Mm. And then just a pure healing like album where I can cry about these issues of like, I've lost two brothers in five years to the same hospital. I've seen my sister's house burned down yeah. and saved my family and lived with my family for what, a good eight months in a two bedroom apartment and all of us in the situation. So, and this happened 2019. So this has like been a very heavy time but somehow something's pulled me through i've survived i'm i'm not an optimist but i'm optimistic i, I think it's also parenting i read a lot about where the future's going for my daughter's sake like 2038 is the year that we've been marked as catastrophe becomes forget irreversible but where <laughs> the climate issue is in our faces like COVID is right now where we can't live further beyond the situation i've just been looking and going my thought is 21 then yeah so that's what i'm trying to figure out is how do i create a time portal for my family and for those i love like how do we have a farm that we can work on how do we go beyond my dreams of being a great musician <laughs> yeah and move to just a space of being self-reliant because this world is not turning and that's the scariest part as a parent is it's yeah. like i'm looking at it and i'm like it's not turning for the better. It's not healing that's becoming the measure. And that's the worrying feature. See, I think, I like to think of it. If enough of us go back towards the healing and move away from the commercial and we trust, because that's what it sounds like. It sounds like you trust. You trusted. And the path just revealed itself. And I know it sounds super esoteric, but I think that's the way. When you are ready to say no to fear-based things yeah, and just trust that the universe has your back <laughs> and yeah you it's, will be it's never easy you no, know I'm, i know and i believe in it <laughs> totally agree and man it's i think it's a doubtfulness you know it's the thing stupidity is so easy you know yeah and why i say it's easy is just like it has less doubt i look at the cats i've come up with in life who did the simple obvious things and got that gratification and then got the money yeah. and then got the coke addiction. And then because the spirituality of what they were doing was not centered into anything else except that path. Yes. So 
I do get it, but it's just like the thing about this very measured thinking about where reality is is it's full of doubt in a world that wants you to be affirmative. So it's kind of <laughs> you get stuck in this catch twenty two where you know you believe that you're here to create a better future in every decision you make, mm. but you're looking at like the rot. Yes, you know. And a friend of mine, the same friend to me, was like, "We can only burn it down." Yeah, and I don't believe in that. I'm, I'm and I know that's true. <laughs> mm. That's the weirdest part is I don't believe in that, but I know it's true because. You know, we grew up as, I think the 80s kids grew up with the, we can change it from the inside. Yeah. That was, we still thought it was achievable at that point. I still believe it. I sadly <sighs> believe, it's like, you see it with the malls. Yeah. yeah. We have to just go build a new thing. I'm not about decolonizing universities that have built a world of hate, slavery, and et cetera, et cetera, of big words for a very long time. Yeah. I'm not about changing those spaces. I think those spaces should change themselves. I'm about acknowledging new spaces and acknowledging existing knowledge systems, like the indigenous knowledge systems, and going, why is there no space for me to go get stuff to help me with my flu that is indigenous? And then some of you like, there is, it's just not within your middle class, yes. you know, 44 Stanley once, it's not a chemist. Yes. There is. Down in every street corner, there's an Indian woman who runs it, and you're like, How does she run medicine for black people? This is all intense. Yeah. <laughs> and, you're, and you're sitting there and you're going, It's there. And that's why I agree with you. I don't agree about changing it anymore. Mm. I think it's been the change in me, and like, in relating to this idea of being painted as an angry black male, mm. is your job is not to change their perception of you, because even at your best behavior, some just will never welcome you. Yeah. You know, the Mandelaism of life is not true. Mandela wasn't welcomed. He got turned into a villain to his people. Mm. You know, so you got to come from a space of self-love that does not deal with the peripherization that whiteness gives you in life. You know, you yeah. got to not be thinking what would they think. You got to throw it out the window because they've, they've lost some contact with the earth. They've yeah. lost contact with the real... They don't have culture as a thing that underpins, or they don't call it culture that underpins who they are and how they interact with each other. They're not looking after the weakest within their society mm. and within their situation. So why are they the aspirant race still? Yeah. You travel around the world, you look at it and you're like, you're so sad. My people at home who have nothing, nothing going for them, yeah. have great weekends. You all suck. Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? And I, I kind of had to move myself away from, like, and it's, I, I always tell someone, like, Steve Biko said, black love is the antithesis to white hate, but thesis and antithesis reach an equilibrium. And what happens there? Like, what happens when you realize you love yourself and you're not thinking of yourself the way they are? Do you have to just continue to keep doing that? Like, asking for their affirmation of your love? Yeah. No, you got to move to creating like the humanist spaces that you think should exist because you're not the only one. And there's many more who need the space of breathing emancipation and a relation that is real to this lived experience who want to go beyond race, you know, because <laughs> that's the thing with most people. When you mention race a lot, they think, oh, so you want to live in a, like a racist world. And you're like, 
you're still stuck in a race paradigm of thinking about this. And that's the beauty of apartheid and Furfoot system. Yeah. Is that it just re-replicates. It's a virus. You can't think of it in that way. You got to think of it of how do we start thinking and calling ourselves different things? And then, wh- wait a minute. Oh, the natives already do that. They're not black people. No. Abantabantzundu, which are the people of the earth. Mm. That's how they acknowledge who they are. But you're kidding their language because you want them to acknowledge this black-white thing. It even starts happening in language. There's a beautiful struggle song. And it says, I've heard contemporary versions of it. They've changed the word Ntsundu to Bamnyama. And Mnyama means black. Yeah. You know? So slowly in the language, our cultures are being eradicated even our ways, the emancipatory ways of us seeing ourselves and actually emancipating whiteness from its own whiteness as well because you're not white. <laughs> mm. When I speak of white, you're not white. White is aspirant. <laughs> white is not a positionality. Yeah, There is no such thing as white. No one is white enough. It's like I can replace it with that middle class culture relation. We, it always makes you feel like you're not enough. It always makes you feel like you're aspiring to be something else. Yeah. You're never here. You're never in the now. You're never dealing with the, like how wondrous and bountiful life is. It may not all be in your account, but it's out there. Like, like people in South Africa were saying, Vuga ukeze ubangene, which is wake up, wash, and go get them. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no matter beautiful. how broke you are, no matter what's happening in your life, wake up, wash, and go get them. And this kind of thing has pushed me to leave my home on a Saturday with no money and come back on a Monday after a great weekend, gone out to Kitchener's, I've eaten freaking prawns. I had no money in my pocket. Yeah, I wasn't leeching off people. I went out and people took me out and this happened. No, I was open to how bountiful life is. Yes, yes. You know oh. what I'm trying to say? And that's yes. the thing. It's like, it's so weird. It's like, I learned these things in the white way of my brain and my consciousness of how I've been brought up you know, in an Anglo society. And when I come to the ends of it, I'm like, wait a minute, indigenous knowledge had this covered way before. Yes. It has quantum covered way before. Everything these things are realizing now. The indigenous knowledge system has been like, yeah, but we've been having it. It's just the, y'all are stuck. It's the earth medicine. Yeah, y'all are still stuck on the last hundred years. Y'all are still talking about Farvud's ideas and never ever really integrating your society. Mm. Because integrating society is also trying to teach and it's not black people teaching white people that. It's whiteness realizing there's no whiteness. Yeah. It's blackness realizing there's no blackness. You know? There's an essence. And that's what we're all trying to point to is the essence. But like this ageist thing is we're still pointing at old white men trying to like grasp the essence who didn't have WhatsApp, <laughs> who didn't have Google, <laughs> who had no way of connecting with people in the ways we have of connecting with people around the world. Yeah. So we're reliving old white men and old black men's fights. And it's a sad space to be because, like, the young kids can't be, like, they got a bigger issue at play. Like, they got a planet that's burning. You know, we've always had that, but it's never been put at the core. Yeah. We got a planet that's burning. Who gives a damn about my music career? (laughs) Yeah. Let's take the word career away. Yeah. And just say music because there's the healing that's going to fix it. See, then that's the difference. Yeah. Is that the music is not separate. The music is part of nature. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Do you know exactly. what I'm saying? That's exactly. the thing about it. It's that that's what the whole Indaba conversation was trying to say. Was yeah. like, there may be schools. We may have gotten to this and these sounds and these relations through what most people would think are like white ways of doing things. 
But we went. Everything keeps bringing us back to its essence, mm-hmm. its core. All the bands that were on that were talking. We didn't even plan it. We didn't even say, oh, this is what we're going to do. No. Mm-hmm. When the tracks came back, they did something together because we're all dealing with the same condition. Absolutely. You know, it has its multiplicities of ways it plays out, but we're dealing with the same condition. We were searching, we're searching for the gods. We're searching for our higher selves. We're searching for old ways of thinking because these new ways of thinking have just like separated everything and made it hard to live. Yeah. Made it hard to plant, made it hard to do anything. So now we're trying to find not new ways, but like the old ways. And that's the problem with South African psyche and commercial capitalist culture is it wants, what is the new solution? You know, and I always look back at the Japanese. They have reverence for the old and yet they strive for the new. Yes. You know, Beautiful. They don't make one above the other. They realize it's a continuum of the same thing. You know? Amazing. <laughs> and now, if anyone wanted to go hear that Indaba album, where could they listen to it? Brownswood Recordings. I have it on their band camp. Okay. It's now about Brownswood Recordings for the next 20 years. So nice. it, it comes back to us in 20 years' time, all those tracks. But it's for them. And there was this amazing moment where they phoned after the George Floyd incident. And they were like, maybe we shouldn't do this project. And I just paid to service the car. I was oh. leaving East London in two days' time. Mm. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. And they're like, oh, my God. I'm like, well, we feel like we are, we're the colonizer and we're extracting again from the colonized. Interesting. And I was like, you okay. They're like, is there a way we could do this so that we could deal with that issue? And Tandy and Tandy was like, "Yeah, cut all of their terms by half." <laughs> yeah, I found them back. Yo, can you cut all your terms by half? Yes. Okay, make them pay for. Can you? Yes. Okay. And then by the end of the call, she was like, "Okay, cool. So we're doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing this. Cool. <laughs> right, cool job. Amazing. I mean, that's incredibly conscious. Very. But I also realized why later, the majority of that team were black females. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. So you see this whole commonality, this idea of who the colonizer is, this idea of who is native, all of them are coming into question every single time because we all think of these things in nation-state ideas. We're swimming in the problems that we can't conceive of a new world outside of such. We can't meet each other halfway in the Atlantic together yeah. and create a new world because we're still stuck in white-black. Yes. In my head, everyone at that office was white, lily-white going home to the lily white world yeah but that's because that's a shortcoming on my part that's growing up in a very racialized country (laughs) that makes everything about race that's the truth yeah yeah you know what i'm trying to say that it's made me that way and it's okay but it's about being conscious of the fact that you know it's not fair to consider that everybody who's in the uk is lily white (laughs) and that that lily whiteness is lily whiteness yeah because there's no such thing (laughs) Mind blown. <laughs> so now, as we run down to the end of the interview, yes, a couple of really important questions. Mm-hmm. What keeps you doing this? Whew. It's a calling. It's a calling. I'm still waiting for an old man to come out of the bush and yes. show me how it's actually supposed to be done. But it's a calling. 
I, w- I wouldn't try to run away from even though after pop starts I stopped singing mm. from a trick up until third year varsity when we started orangutan bitch <laughs> and, uh, um, good name <laughs> it was a great name <laughs> from that point I was speaking to a cousin of mine who's just uh, moved up in the corporate ranks of life yeah I was like yeah well done you know and he's just focusing on actually like building my career because I'm getting old and she was like yeah but dude when you're up there you're in, you're in the place you're supposed to be you know you're not trying to perform you don't perform anymore you know you rave you lose your shit and it helps and I was like okay cool yeah and that's what I'm battling with place you're supposed to be without a doubt mm. is there a song that you wish that you'd written shucks <laughs> ooh that's a tough one of course there's a lot but if I had to be specific yeah Labyrinth, Jealous, the song itself says it's young, black, British, R&B crooner. New music. Big thing was also I need to let go of old music. I love old music too much <laughs> that I don't listen to enough new music. And I started listening to this song and it's just, I wish I had written it. Yeah. And then a close second would be PJ Morton. He does a really great Bee Gees cover. Oh, it's off the album Gumba, How Deep Is Your Love. Mm, what a beautiful song. Yeah, PJ Morton featuring Yeba. And Yeba, oof, she just brings, she does that thing, it's what we're talking about, how whiteness doesn't exist. She's able to tap into the soul music. Like her voice when she comes on and takes that verse. If you close your eyes, it's a black woman doing that, you yeah. know? But if you listen clearly, you realize it's actually a white woman doing that. But it's it's based on just that essence is not black or white, you know? Yeah. Truth. And not in a Mandela way of like, I don't see colors. No. It's in the Steve Beaker way of like, first find the thesis antithesis within yourself to deal with how the stuff has been made to be like, so that you can see for yourself what it would mean for you to liberate yourself, you know? So it's that. And Yeba sound is in that. Like, when you play it, it's just like, even black people, because it's all recorded in studio. Yeah. So there's a lot of like, whoa, yay, <laughs> ow. You know, music hits people like that, like why? <laughs> you know, yes. yeah. No, that's 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 a number I wish I would have covered. I mm. would lie. It's beautiful. I'm stuck now, also trying to figure out what I'm gonna cover for the album, in essence. Yeah, because also I come from a cover culture. Bob Charlie. Dylan, Bob Dylan covering Nina, Nina covering. I'm just like, yeah, this is like songs. Yeah, that's the thing. Goes back to the beauty of song. It's even you see it in South African music, like the Kwaito scene, the commercial scene, mm-hmm. you know, tries to do a Kwaito rendition. Oh, there's some that just hit it right. <laughs> it just like reminds you. They take you through that nostalgia, but they recreate the song in mm-hmm. totality. And there's some who just don't understand cover culture. Yeah. Who don't understand that it's a song. You're not supposed to just like reiterate that other person's song. Like you got to come at it with. And that's what's come with this Matsuri record retrospective. We, we had to look at the song. This one song we were like, we're not changing the song. Yeah. We're playing it as is. It's amazing. We're figuring out how to do this. And the more we got into it, we're like, the song is so intricate. It's actually scary. And then the rest of the song, we came with a, we can never replay this. <laughs> so how do we bring it in the sphere of what we do? And I was just like, in that learning, I was like, man, you know, like working in song. Because that, that, I think that's what started the commercialization of music was like this relation to song. Yeah. 
And song is powerful. And song is, it is a textural thing to work through together as a group of people who are artists. And it's nice to, you know? Mm. It's just, I think it got removed slightly from that relation. Because I think, and that's what people love. People love songs. They don't give a damn about the brother moves on. They want their song. Yep. <laughs> it's all about the song. Yeah. yeah. And we used to fetch songs. We used to go to play places and come back and have a new song because we fetched a song there. Because getting ready for stage, we'd take an acoustic guitar, take a walk, mm-hmm. sit somewhere and someone be like, oh my God, listen to this. And then you start singing. Like, okay, cool. Right when we get home. Okay, cool. Amazing. Yeah. When we were like really probably like in tune with what we were doing. Yes. It was power. You know? And it comes oh. comes and goes, but it comes. You know? When you allow it. Yeah. And also you gotta just practice the boredom of it. You know, it's not gonna be like seated and just like issues of when it gets presented. It's like it needs to be your thing. Yeah. You know? Otherwise it destroys you. There's another side we forget about it. It's an energy. It's an energy that's freaking like centuries old. It yes. can destroy you. You know, you yep. think you're just playing guitar. No, <laughs> freaking destroy your fucking life. <laughs> yeah. And that's the basis of it. It's like, you got to come in with, with that sense of reverence. And that's why I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. I thank God that I didn't have my grades because I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if it's drama. I don't know if it's music. I don't, I'm just doing, you know? Yeah. I, I, sometimes really, really badly. <laughs> And it's just not about that. I think that's a big part. Yeah, it's doing. It's just like, I read something even in my workout. You know, to be good at something, you got to do it badly. Mm. You got to try. That's that's, that's all you give yourself. And I think most singers don't think they can sing. Yeah. When you start to think you can sing, something dies. You know? That's the thing about it. It's like if if the curiosity and the doubt and the fear don't meet in a really, like, comfortable space... You could easily have a great pop career and pay for everyone's bills and be empty. You know? It's so relieving to hear you talk about it. <laughs> it does happen. Yeah. People make it, but they don't make it. You know? Yeah. That's the thing. And there's many who come up with a scene who popped and has made it and when you meet that person, you're like, they're not happy. Yeah. They were able to pay their bills. And look, man, it's great to pay your bills. <laughs> no lies. It's great, yeah, yeah. Mm. but there's something to be lost, and I think that's what we keep forgetting. There is something to be lost, there is something that is your essence as well, and what you bring to this music and the joy it brings to you. Totally. And if it stops being fun, let it go. You know, I feel so many musicians are walking around being artists forever. Let it go. You were someone before you were an artist. <laughs> You know, and that's the thing about it. And then if you find it in the joy of that someone, great. If you don't and you become an engineer, damn, you've done it. <laughs> Yo, so how, many times, Yo, how many times do you want to do it? Because yeah. that's where I hit the boredom. I'm like, oh God, okay, it's great. Doing this for this long. It's getting better and better. It's really nice. But it's getting boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What am I bringing to it to make it fun? Not in like a, look, I'm so exciting. No, <laughs> but like, has it got real use? Because if it doesn't feed you, lost it. I mean, it's so interesting. It's an interesting perspective. And I'm going to ask you a question on the other side of it. Mm. Advice to make artists keep doing it. Ray and I used to have this thing called highest excitement. Mm. Do the things of highest excitement. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes the music is in washing dishes. Interesting. Yeah. 
you know sometimes it's in letting it go sometimes it's in playing with your child it becomes a problem when this thing became something you do in an office as well because the studio is an office yeah is that the curiosity of it like died and it being part of nature and part of a balanced life fell away yeah you know I see it in anyone who pops and becomes huge no one manages it you know yeah. takes over their lives takes over everything they are they live on Instagram yeah they're always in meetings away from the essence yeah so yeah. count on popping yeah amazing count amazing. on popping and make it healthy because then you'll start to redefine what your pop is beautiful because there's things like we, we remember playing gigs for a thousand rands as five members and being so over the hill now you can get a gig for 15k and everyone's like oh i don't know you know oh god yeah. oh i don't know if i can do it you know something you know yeah because you started to make the money the reason and it's not to say money's not important. Mm. It's not to say value's not important. But like, you're going to cross thresholds. And if that's the argument, then it's going to be empty. Yeah. On the other side, you're going to be paid. It's going to be empty. And that's the point. It's like when you're paid, you should be enjoying it further because you had a plan to be paid like this. And you knew when you get paid like this, this is what you're going to do with the dough. So that, that idea you had can grow or that younger you who's stuck in this situation, you can solve that idea and make lots of money there. I don't see anyone going back to solve problems they had and make money off those. Yeah. You know? We're still dealing with the same problems that they had in the 2000s as musicians. No one came at them with like a new vibe of like, yo, let's find a way through this, man. And that's what I'm finding is problematic. Is like, cats get to the other side, get bored, do nothing, get bored, do nothing. We're not building the culture. We're not building the scene. There's not cool ways in which, like, I remember 340 mil coming to my varsity yeah. and me paying five bucks to watch them for that axe tour. None of that's around anymore. Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? No one's creative about these things anymore. They're leaving it to the brands, you know? Yeah. That's the problem. The brands don't know. The brands aren't out there doing the R&D. We are. <laughs> Yeah, the labels aren't out there doing the R and D. We are, <laughs> but we're not changing that R and D into products that like matter, and that's because we don't think we matter. And then we go back to a broken system to sign us, to put out our stuff, to make it happen. We're like, ah, you can never make money doing this as a musician. I'm like, yeah, that's why I've had the problem with anyone calling me a musician, because <laughs> that's not all I do. <laughs> Absolutely, you know what I'm trying to say, and you can't. That all died a very long time ago. But now we're trying to build the other world that kind of works in that space. I want those conversations. I'm interested in how we're doing difference to our future and not just going back to the same source. If I worked in for a good six months, I could get a job at Sony. I could get a job at EMI. <laughs> and what does that mean? Yeah. I've gone into a structure that is broken. Instead of trying to think with my peers of how do we build something that like can carry us? Are we seeing it everywhere around the world? And that's my problem is that I don't want it to be, and that's South Africa's thing. I hear it every time on radio and everywhere. This young man has a great idea. If we can just get it out, then I'm like, no. We need to take this idea and put it into the collective space and break it <laughs> and make a collective idea from it because it's just 
It's just the tip of the iceberg. It's the beginning. It's that proposal I sent to Brownswood. The album is not that proposal. Mm. The album is 48 other people jumping in and making it part of who they are and what they are and making it into something and turning it into a collective artifact. Yeah. Beautiful. That's the point. I don't want to be the next McDonald's guy. I don't want to be the guy who came up with a great idea. No. When are we like turning things into the things we actually believe in and going... I have this thing and I feel like it's the beginning of something. How do I give it away to you all so that you all make it with me? So that we all build away of how it's financed. Yeah. And we all turn it into our dream. Instead of like, yeah, look, I did good. That's the problem. We're not moving. We believe that the answer is communal, but we're not moving to ways of communal. We believe the future is female, but we're not moving to ways that are female. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm trying to say? We were professing these things, but like I don't, I don't see it in the real. I see us still fighting masculinity. I still I see us. We're still dealing with like the whiteness. Yeah. We're not leaving it. We're not going. Okay, cool. It's failed us. Thanks. Yeah. What's our new thing? Can we stop convincing guys who are still trying to figure it out online that it's whack? Yeah. But what's our new thing? We are our conversations online of like, yo, guys, let's start this cooperative. Let's make it work like this. And I, this many people are doing podcasts, guys. Yeah. Where's the podcast gig guide? Where do I get to know who my friends who are doing stuff are? How do I support them? I'm not seeing that proactive conversation. And it's because we're so overwhelmed because it's getting dire. Yeah. But that's now a time to flip it over on its edge. Like Greece did. When Greece realized that their, <laughs> their currency had crashed, they come up with new ways of bartering, new ways of engaging. Because the value is in us, not in the stock exchange. Yes. Beautiful. The value is in us. <laughs> it is. That's what they keep reselling. That's why the brands want you. It's because no one wants to come to their thing. Mm. They want to come to their thing when you're there. And they've made everyone believe the other way around. Of like, yeah, but no one wants to come to your thing. They want to come to a branded thing. Yes. Like, everything I'm wearing is wasn't like a psychosomatic thought process of, wow, I saw the ad and I now need it. Yeah. No, some of it was random. Some of it maybe. But not all of it. Yeah. And you know, that's what I'm trying to get at. I'm not a brand. And us as humans, we need to stop thinking of ourselves as brands. Yes. It's pathetic. <laughs> oh, we're trying so desperately to be brands. No, we want to fit in. Yeah. Aspiration. We want to just fit in. We're seeing other people outside. And I, I take it back to the first time I saw Spook playing Rocking the Daisies. And I'm like, <laughs> I want to do that. Oh my God, I want to do that. I so want to do that. Yes, so definitely want to do that. It looks like you get money. Oh my God. looks like you walk away from there with money. Yeah. <laughs> a year later, I got the Rocking the Daisies call. Oh, so there's no money. Oh. Yeah. Oh, oh. Okay. And you're the headline act, but there's no money. Oh, this is weird. Yeah. You know? Yes. So whoever you're aspiring to is dealing with the reality of that we're all reactionaries. Absolutely. Themselves. There's a kid who looked up, I saw the brother moves on, who was like, I want to play that stage and make money. Yes. It's a lie. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's not that there's no money in music. It's just like points they're showing you are not the money points. It's their money points. Where are yours? And that's the basis. I'm just like, yeah. Stop aspiring. Stop. Stop wishing you were somewhere else. Stop wishing you were someone else. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And give people their props. Give Spook his props for the hard work he's done. You know. 
don't make those who came before you seem like they duped you. Nah. We're all reactionaries. The system duped us. You know, have some empathy for everyone. And might build some empathy for yourself. Because I think that's the biggest issue. We're really just ripping ourselves apart. Wow. <laughs> oh, and if anybody wants to follow you, find out what you're involved in, how can they get hold of you? I'm himself, him, so H-Y-M-N mm-hmm. underscore self, yeah. which is my solo project name well. I'm working on, on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I run the Brother Moves on Instagram page and the TBMO music, uh, which I'm hoping someone will take over. If you're listening <laughs> out there, really, I hate it. <laughs> On Twitter, I'm Mr. Gold is me. Also, I hate Twitter. I really want my Twitter page to go away, so that won't last long. Mm-hmm. On Facebook, Siabongam Tembu, the one thing that won't go away for some reason, I'm stuck with Mark Zuckerberg. And yeah, that's where you can find me. You can find the Brother Moves on stuff on www.thebrothermoveson.com or the Brother Moves on on Facebook. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for coming in. This has been incredible. Thank you for having me. I got a lot of stuff off my chest. I didn't even know. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this has really been wonderful. My mind is blown by a number of things. I look forward to processing. That's cool. That's cool. That's great. That's why the interaction. And thank you. With you giving me this opportunity, I also just went through a lot there. Yeah. To like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I didn't think I was doing all right. I'm doing all right. <laughs> You're doing all right. More than. Yeah, but you made me remember. I think that's the biggest thing I've been professing in the last while. You need to just remember, not aspire. Mm. Just remember. Like the truth is here. The truth has always been here. Just remember. Like aspirations about you not being enough. Rememberings about the fact that your great great greats left the earth in a good space for you. You just gotta remember there's palaces in the sky everywhere. If you are an indie artist whose passion for what you do can inspire or fuel others, get in touch. I'd love to chat. You can find me on Instagram at Shotgun Tori. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.